Have you been zombified by politics? I haven't, but people who have different political views than me definitely are a mindless zombie horde. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I I think clearly, but... Everybody else is zombified. Yes, yes. So, um, <laughs> despite despite my best efforts to argue with them over Twitter, you know, that's just hopeless. It's clear so, that they're just zombies. They're mindless zombies. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, how about you? Have you well, been for me, um, I, I mean, I guess honestly, yes, but I try to fight that as much as I can. You know, it's like I have my own you know, perspective that definitely um, makes me see some people as, you know, not as um, mindful about their approach to life. And I kind of just try to keep putting myself in like the framework of like, or the mind mindset of, well, what, like, where are they coming from? What's their life like? And especially what information are they seeing or not seeing? And like, that's not the same information that I'm seeing. So, so yeah, I, I think, um, I have been zombified by politics and that's affected my ability to have, um, you know, conversations with people about, um, policy, but I have some awareness that I am zombified, which helps. I like, I actually like just insulting whoever I'm talking to. I feel like that helps. <laughs> I know that's, that's how you work, Dave. It, hel- <laughs> it helps me. You know, I don't know if it, if it moves the conversation forward, but I like sort of saying clearly you don't understand this because there's something wrong with you. And then I, you know, <laughs> and then I, and then somehow the person blocks me. Um, so, so well, then you don't um, have to deal with it anymore. So exactly. <laughs> problem solved. <laughs> um, well, uh, speaking of being, um, zombified, uh, welcome to the zombified podcast. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so. We are your source for fresh brains and I'm your host, Athena Actipus. I'm a psychology professor at ASU and the chair of the zombie apocalypse medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host Dave Lundberg, Henrik media outreach program manager at ASU and uh, brain and internet argument enthusiast. So, <laughs> yeah, we 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 love brains, and um, at least you love arguing with people on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a love hate relationship. Uh, yeah. But now our guest today isn't really specifically talking about arguing with people on the internet, but just how politics and policy, the challenges of sort of dealing with that in a world where things are zombified, right? Yeah. How do you have a conversation about policy when that whole conversation has gotten hijacked by politics? Yeah. That's, that's sort of what we're talking about. And you know, what's interesting for me, Dave, about this episode is we, you know, recorded it, um, a couple months ago, But I feel like it is more relevant than ever right now with all of the, you know, like just how intense um, a lot of the debates have become about how to deal with the pandemic and how politicized um, those have become. And, you know, kind of have this, you know, like so many people being just zombified by the politics, which makes it hard to have a reasonable conversation about policy. Yeah, it is. It's tough. It's really tough. Um, 
And it turns out, you know, it's it's tough to discuss policy. Um, and I think even in person, and this is a big challenge I think people have at Thanksgivings with their family and things like this. You know, it's a really tough, it's a tough thing. So, yeah. um, so now Mary Ziegler, our guest, she has quite a background on this. Yeah, so she is a specialist in the legal history of abortion, family, sexuality, and the Constitution. And so she is a professor at Florida State University in the College of Law. And she is an expert on the abortion debate and how uh, that, you know, both its legal history and the sort of social issues around even having disagreement, having debate about it, the, you know, and um, that's, a lot, you know, a lot of what we talked to her about in this episode kind of ties in with the abortion debate, but it is much more general in terms of, you know, thinking about how do we have reasonable conversations about policy without it becoming about politics. Yeah. It's a pretty, it's a pretty serious episode. I got to say, like, I, and I remember at the end, I think I went home and took a nap because I was just like, it's tough. It's, I, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah. tough to talk about, you know? And so, yeah. um, but I, I think it's really important. And I think it's like, I mean, it's, these are things that we've been as a country, as a society, we've been trying to figure out for decades yeah. now. So, um, so yeah. Yeah. And so to me, you know, really big, big question that comes out of it is how do we, talk about our differences of opinion without calling the other side mindless zombies. Yeah. And I think that is right? really important. Yeah. 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 Um, so. Uh, All right. Well, I think we're ready to jump in. All right. Sounds good. So let's hear from this week's Fresh Brain, Mary Ziegler. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today on Zombified. Uh, would love to just have you introduce yourself in your own words for us to get started. Sure. Um, my name's Mary Ziegler. Uh, I study the legal history of reproduction, especially the abortion debate. I think I'm three books in now and well into a fourth. So I, I, when I started thinking about this topic, I was a second year law student and we were reading books about whether you can use the law to change the world and I kept waiting for the book about Roe v. Wade, and there was no such book, I was told. So I thought at the time, well, just I'll write that book. And that wasn't that easy, of course. So here I am, however many <laughs> decades mm -hmm. later, still trying to do that. But that's that's kind of where it all got started. It sounds like it kind of like initially came from a, a place of really wanting to have a positive effect on the world. Yeah, and I think also just understand, too. I mean, I, I think there there's a lot of social change work that's done kind of flying blind. Um, and I, I always thought history would be a good way of understanding what has and hasn't worked um, instead of just what we would like to work. Hmm. Yeah. 
Are there particular aspects of that sort of historical framework that really have informed the work that you're doing today? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is just that uh, there's it, it all where we are today often can kind of feel inevitable um, or natural. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was first studying legal history, I think I was reading old newspaper stories about eugenics from the early 20th century. And I, you know, I no one had even told me about eugenics when I was whatever, 24. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that such things had existed and that they had been pervasive at the highest levels of government. And I, I, that kind of thing made me wonder, well, how did we get where we are? How differently could things have come out? Um, and that, I think that really has intrigued me when I've written about reproduction ever since. Hmm. That's fascinating. And I mean, it really is a important kind of bigger context of like, you know, we almost assume that where we're at is the only way that things could be. But Mm -hmm. from that historical perspective, I mean, presumably there were a bunch of turning points, some of which, um, you know, might have actually been these sort of legal turning points about policy Mm -hmm. that affected where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also, I always like legal history because I think most non-lawyers, and that includes probably lots of listeners, think that law is is very, it's almost like its own little universe, almost like science can be, and it's really not. I mean, law has always been in pretty much a serious conversation with science and definitely with politics. And so I was always interested in in all the things that go into making law that are not just the sort of things we teach first-year law students. So I'm going to ask a question that's the answer may seem obvious to people who pay attention, but where are we at today? Like what is, you know, um, the current situation with abortion law? With abortion and contraception, actually, we're in a a pretty interesting place. So I think with contraception, we're actually, there's less consensus about contraception than there really has been since the 1960s. And so the way that's changed in part has been that um, social conservatives have found a much more effective way to talk about contraception um, by invoking these concerns about religious liberty. And so now you're seeing efforts to kind of roll back access to or funding for contraception that are quite successful, right, in the courts and in politics. Um, With abortion, we're at an interesting possible turning point, right? We have what we all assume to be a conservative Supreme Court majority that seems likely to dial back abortion rights, but we don't know exactly how much because of course, as soon as Brett Kavanaugh joined the Supreme Court, lots of legal commentators said it's you know a matter of months, it's inevitable that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And here we are a while later, and it doesn't look like that's happening quickly. That doesn't mean it isn't happening. Um, that's partly because the new sort of swing justice on the Supreme Court is John Roberts, and John Roberts is not is nothing if not cunning. He's also very concerned about the Supreme Court's reputation and his own legacy, which doesn't mean he would be unwilling to overturn Roe, but it does mean that he's not going to want to do it in a way that makes the court look partisan. So he's been kind of the force behind a much more kind of go slow approach 
that's harder for lay people really to even understand. <laughs> so where we are now is, is that basically, that you have a, a court with John Roberts at its center kind of inching the court toward overturning Roe, but in a way that's hard for most people to process. And you have the 2020 election being really significant too, of course, because Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's cancer has returned. Um, you have Justice Stephen Breyer, who's also in his 80s, and if either of them were to be replaced by somebody more conservative, then you would end up with a court much more conservative than the one we have now that would probably move much more aggressively toward eliminating abortion rights, you know, in the near term, rather than this kind of more stealth approach that John Roberts seems to be taking. Now, Mary, a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned this sort of interplay and influence from politics on law, and then the also the influence that law has on sort of the course of history. And, you know, with our, our podcast being about zombification, like all of those influences, I think, are really, really fascinating and on point for us. So, you know, how how is it that law is kind of sitting in this place of, you know, both being influenced by politics and um, then also the law having this influence on history? Yeah, I mean, I think zombification when you're thinking about abortion is particularly poignant because the United States has this sort of uniquely dysfunctional abortion debate. It's a source of sort of endless fascination for other, really for people living abroad about why we're like this. And the, the default explanations usually are things like there's more re intense religious sentiment in the United States in terms of people who actually go to church and consider not just consider themselves believers, but act on that. But I, I think a lot of it is because there's so much interaction between um, politics and law. So um, in the United States, abortion is, is a party issue in a way that is not true in most other places. If you go back just a few weeks to the Republican National Convention, President Trump fielded lots of speakers who were not just pro-life, but people who were pro-life activists. And that's not an accident. It, as is the case of President Trump, it's been true for decades. Politicians get a lot of votes by emphasizing the abortion issue and by ratcheting up tensions about abortion. So the, the interaction between the two, there's a sort of unfortunate feedback loop where politicians want to appeal to people's emotions and kind of zombify them to get them to vote. And of course, you know, interest groups working in the abortion debate want politicians to help them achieve their goals. So abortion being a party issue in the, in the United States has made, I think, made things worse. And also made things kind of weirdly out of step with what people actually seem to believe. One of the other sort of weirdly zombified features of the abortion debate is if you look at polling, whether from like the 70s or recently, it's remarkably stable. Like people don't change their minds much about whether they think abortion should be legal or about like which restrictions they like. And yet politicians seemingly don't cater to most people at all, right? The, the parties are either very, very pro-life or very, very pro-choice with nothing in between. And that's odd too. There's a sort of way in which the politics of abortion are driven by the people who are the most emotion-centered um, and the most passionate, not the people in the middle who seem to be kind of torn um, and trying to grapple with it maybe in a more reason-oriented way. It sounds like there's a lot of kind of puzzles about 
why the the abortion debate is the way it is in the United States. I mean, you mentioned this issue that like in the U.S. it's unbelievably political compared to other countries. And I just want to circle back to that. Like, you know, what is it that's different in the United States in terms of the how politicized it is versus, you know, other countries where, um, you know, you don't see it being as political? Like, what's it like in other places? Well, it kind of depends on what you're talking about. I mean, so in a lot of places, there isn't, there isn't always the same role played by the judiciary. So if you think about how we, we started out, um, when Dave asked me, you know, where are we now? The first thing I thought to talk about was the Supreme Court. And that's not true in a lot of places. A lot of places have found kind of legislative solutions. Um, another thing that's different is while you may be able, like in, in the UK, for example, there's uh, the conservatives are more socially conservative than the people who tend to be more to the left. So it's not like there's no political alignment or on abortion. But abortion just isn't a wedge issue in the same way. Um, and that's even true in places like Ireland, right? Ireland, that is a very Catholic country that for a long time had a very conservative religious policy voted by referendum to change its abortion policy um, recently. So uh, I, I think just the prominence of the abortion issue is different and the role played by the court is different. And the role played by the court in politics is different too. If you just this week, President Trump put out um, a list of, you know, Supreme Court nominees that he would pick if he were reelected. Um, and then, you know, Tom Cotton prom like promptly began like a Twitter campaign <laughs> to get picked for the, the U.S. Supreme Court. So there was, uh, I think, the court as a reason you should vote, like as the sort of big reason you should care. And that all kind of falling back to what happens to Roe v. Wade is unique here too. Um, it's kind of hard to imagine in lots of other countries that being a kind of coherent election strategy. Yeah. Who is Tom Cotton, by the way? Oh, Tom Cotton is a senator from Arkansas who got uh, a lot of play lately for writing an op-ed in the New York Times um, justifying the use of the military against uh, protesters in cities during the kind of Black Lives Matter movement. Interesting. And is he is he pro-life? Is that... He's very pro-life, yeah. I mean, it, it, the more the kind of weird thing about uh, him as a potential Supreme Court choice is he's not the typical guy to be a Supreme Court nominee, right? Like, usually it's people who you know, our judges in the lower sure. courts have a certain sort of like fancy pedigree. They don't tend to be career politicians. Um, so that's, I think, President Trump trying to use the Supreme Court as an election issue even more than usual, right? Trying to say, I'm going to give you a guarantee by picking politicians who are on record as pro-life, who tweet that Roe v. Wade should go. You know, if you want a kind of money-back guarantee that Roe is going to be overturned, I'm trying to give you one. So please vote for me. So it seems like the whole, you know, process of even sort of dealing with conflict that there is in this country over what we should do about abortion, that that has really gotten hijacked to kind of create this emotionality that then can get leveraged for election and other political ends. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that part of the problem, I think, is that there are 
of course, really deeply held religious and emotional beliefs in, in the abortion debate, but there's a lot of money that's being made ratcheting up the emotional side of things and making it harder for people to compromise. And that's true of, of the social movements too, right? I mean, compromise makes you dispensable to politicians, conversely, right? Like if you're willing to meet in the middle, then you're no longer a group of single issue voters that politician has to care about. And if you are more emotional and more kind of zombified, then you can get politicians to pay more attention to you. Um, so I think that's true. There's a sort of disconnect between where a lot of Americans are and how the politics have evolved for that reason. So, so for so partly, I think there's been so much going on in terms of COVID and protests and just you know chaos. Chaos. Apocalypse. Yeah. That, that, that for me, I think this is a thing where I, I've always sort of thought it was sort of a, a settled issue. Like I knew it wasn't really a settled issue, but in terms of it's like, well, we've got these sort of laws in place. Um, I guess it hasn't. So this is still, this is still a driving issue for a lot of voters. Is that oh, yeah, the case? Yeah. That, I mean, I think that you can make a pretty good argument that if this were not as big of an issue, Donald Trump would not have won in 2016. I mean, there were a lot of people who did not like Donald Trump, but who held their nose and voted for him because it would mean conservative judges who might overturn Roe. I mean, it's that important to some people, like that it's the issue on which they vote, even in my neighborhood, right? I mean, there are people I know who do not like Donald Trump at all, but have choose life, you know, bumper stickers and they're voting for him all the way because of this issue. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty big in American politics, I would say. I mean, in, if it weren't for the fact that everything else has gone so completely to hell, we'd probably all be talking about it, you know, a lot more. Sure. Um, I, so how has this become such a sort of partisan? Well, yeah. And also like partisan. Yeah. Yeah, because um, for me, it always seemed like a strange connection, the sort of like, when you mm -hmm. think about the sort of Republican sort of tax and spend sort of things, and then it just, it always feels like this, oh, and here's one other thing that just happens to be a thing. Yeah, like, well, so that's interesting. So um, it, it actually used to sort of be the opposite, right? Because I think the early pro-life movement wanted to be aligned with the Democrats because the idea would be, you know, the unborn or the fetus is like a minority, like people uh -huh. of color. And we're going to be civil rights, you know, from the womb to the tomb, as they would say, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, that went along with things like we're going to make it easier to get access to birth control and we're going to pay for childcare for low-income women, and we're going to pay for, you know, neonatal care and all of that sort of thing. That was a sort of more natural fit, right? So you would try to limit access to abortion or even ban abortion, but also try to eliminate the reasons that some women who might want to have children were having abortions, right, where they felt they didn't have better options. Um, the anti abortion movement by the 1980s didn't really have a choice but to align with the Republican Party. And the reason the Republican Party made that choice in part was because it was a great way to peel away 
blue collar voters um, like Catholics and evangelical Protestants who had long been Democrats because of economic reasons, right? So folks who were like blue collar people who often wanted or needed the kinds of policies the Democratic Party advocated for were willing to vote against their economic self-interest because of their commitment on the abortion issue. And Ronald Reagan's team recognized that and made the abortion issue a pretty big deal in 1980. And after that, and I think conversely, at the same time, the Democratic Party became very pro-choice um, and had more feminists kind of running the show. And when that happened, you began to get this party alignment that's been there um, ever since. They're, they're sort of outliers, right? Like you can find pro-life Democrats and pro-choice Republicans, but they're pretty, I mean, at least within the party leadership, they're pretty marginalized. Gotcha. Now, I remember when Obama was running, he had a sort of, like he was pro-choice, but he still was really in favor of setting up sort of social mm-hmm. systems that would make um, it easier for for people to choose to have a child, right? And I guess is that that's probably not an uncommon sort of democratic strategy. It's no, like, and there, there's a whole movement now called the reproductive justice movement. One of the things that's striking about... Um, both of these movements has been their kind of unwillingness to frame their arguments in ways that appeal to non-white people. So both of these have been like heavily, heavily white movements. And on the pro-choice side, there's been a reproductive justice movement kind of around forever, but more intensely since the 90s that has said, you know, we're not just for access to abortion, we're for the kind of thing you were mentioning, like, you know, ability to like have safe housing or a living wage or the kinds of things that would make people consider having children. Um, That's been kind of more active in recent years too. But I mean, part of the problem, I think, in addition to just consensus about contraception falling apart has been this kind of complete collapse and consensus about what the facts are um, in the abortion debate. So people's agreement about things like who's having abortions, why are they having abortions, are abortions safe, are abortions causing breast cancer, you know, these things that you would think we could resolve by looking at data, we can't anymore, right? So there's been a kind of, um, the abortion debate's focused more on facts, and as that's happened, people have disagreed even more, um, and the polarization's actually gotten worse. Mary, can you say a little bit more about that? Like, you know, what are the facts about abortion that, you know, people should know and what are some common misconceptions or places where there's misinformation out there? I think the the thing that gets contested the most are are questions about the the safety of abortion, um, both vis-a-vis childbirth and just in general. Um, And the reason that happened, I think, was because the anti-abortion movement wasn't getting that far just by advocating for like a right to life or something like that. The kind of more emotional arguments were getting them part of the way, but not all of the way. And so instead the focus was on the idea that abortion um, hurts women. And the reason that started to get so crazy was because um, there were entirely independent sources of information. Like this is a kind of zombification too. So you're having anti-abortion folks who have their own experts, their own data, their own expert organizations, their own media. And so people are literally inhabiting like completely different worlds when it comes to the facts, which makes having a productive conversation, you know, nuts. I mean, so I think 
Um, you know, better data suggests abortion is safe, although some abortion procedures are riskier than others, and abortion is a medical procedure, so there's some risks necessarily involved in any procedure. But I think part of what would be a good starting point were for, would be for people to just admit if they're talking about ideology and not about facts or science, right? There's a lot of people who are dressing up emotional or ideological arguments as scientific arguments and making it harder to kind of get down to the nuts and bolts of what people are saying. I think it's ironically easier to have an honest, less simplified conversation if you're, you come out with the fact that this is an emotional issue for you or a religious issue for you, because then at least people can respect your position, try to empathize with you, maybe see if there's some other parallel issue you could work on, like maternal mortality or something, versus, um, you know, kind of doing alternative facts, which I think has been happening in the abortion debate for a while and has been happening in debates about COVID too. Yeah, I mean, this whole issue of like, you know, what are the facts? What do we really know? What is, you know, misinformation? What, mm-hmm. you know, what bodies look like they're official scientific bodies, but are not? I mean, this is becoming such a huge problem now, just yeah. sort of wading through. I mean, even, you know, for me as a scientist, right, I live in a world where it's like, you know, peer review and, you know, goes through this mm-hmm. very long process. Um even that's not perfect, right? But, uh, you know, the way that information gets spread to general audiences is largely now through these media that propagate information not based on how true it is, but rather based on how attention-grabbing it is. And yeah, exactly. That, Go ahead, that sorry. can just lead to, you know, a, a people going down, you know, these rabbit holes of you know, getting caught in these alternative universes that aren't really based on fact. It's frightening. Yeah. And I I think the thing that I I, I kind of learned in in researching my book, I talked to people who had fallen down that rabbit hole and you can kind of construct how it happens because people who are opposed to abortion, who are are deeply sincere and they don't believe that, and, and people who are in favor of legal abortion are deeply sincere. And so it's very hard for people to accept data that don't line up with these very deep, very emotional beliefs. And so what would happen inevitably for a lot of these activists is that when data did not confirm what they thought, they would say, oh, this is just political correctness, right? This is the other side, you know, twisting the data to make them tell a story that they like for political reasons. So because people have these emotional commitments, they kind of are willing to dismiss data and not just dismiss the data, but sort of distrust the institutions that provide the data, right? Whether that's the media or, you know, the American Medical Association or some, you know, major research bodies, they they begin to kind of get lumped into this category of, you know, kind of the establishment that is kind of hawking a particular narrative for political reasons. Um, and so when you have really emotional beliefs about something like abortion, it can twist your ability to accept and understand facts. And that isn't, some of it is certainly, and this is true, I think, on any side of the abortion debate, some of it is certainly intentional, right? Like it's strategic. But some of it, I think, is coming from a place of people, you know, really believing abortion is bad and not being 
able quite literally to accept data that don't so, confirm that. So what kind of data are we talking about? Is this like data about the number of people who are having abortions? Is this data about the, like what? I, well, I'm probably just, the easiest is um, risks of abortion. That's been probably the most politicized. So there's been an ongoing campaign. Just recently, Mike Pence visited a crisis pregnancy center, which is a place that um, either, depending on your perspective, either provides alternatives to abortion or tries to convince women not to have abortions. Um, And when Pence went there, this place specializes in part in the argument that abortion increases the risk of breast cancer. And there were some studies um, in the 90s that suggested that might be true that relied largely, for example, on like self-reporting from patients who had had abortions and had breast cancer. Um, And then later, that was obviously a problem because one, you know, those patients might have been, patients who actually got cancer might have been more responsive to the study than people who didn't. And they couldn't control for other stuff that might have increased the odds of cancer like smoking history. Um, And then later research that actually could follow women throughout time, it was done um, in using data abroad um, that followed women throughout their lives found no increased risk. And then the American Cancer Society and the National Institutes of Health and other bodies all came out and said, there is no increased risk. Um, And that changed absolutely nothing from an advocacy standpoint. So states will still mandate that you tell women that there's an increased risk of breast cancer. Crisis pregnancy centers still stay this too. And that's generally how the argument is made, right? That these groups are not interested in the truth. They're interested in keeping abortion legal because that's their political game and that they can't be trusted, essentially. So if you want the real truth about breast cancer and abortion, you have to go to alternative medical organizations, which exist, that talk about abortion and breast cancer. You have to read alternative publications. And that kind of parallel universe of data exists in other ways, too, especially with things like um, the idea that abortion causes post-traumatic stress disorder in women who have abortions, and maybe even their partners. Um, the idea that abortion causes fetal pain um, early, relatively early in pregnancy, like at the 20th week, when most research suggests it can't be until later. Um, you know, some anti-abortion folks have pushed the idea that um, you can reverse medication-based abortions, which there's no data to support. And the one study on the subject had to be shut down because patients were having such adverse reactions to the protocol. But anti-abortion legislators and medical experts still claim it's safe and legitimate. So Wait, you can find mean? lots... You, you can, oh, you're ahead, saying sorry. you could re- reverse medically-induced abortions? Like, yeah, well, the, the idea is like a two-pill protocol, right? So if you if you were having a medication abortion, you would take one, two pills, right? And um, the idea is that if you take the first pill, but not the second pill, and then you have huge infusions of progesterone that you won't have an abortion. And like quite literally, like no one has studied this before, except for one group of researchers that had to shut down the study. So that's, I guess that's kind of more unusual in the sense that it just seems sort of like it's based on nothing, not, uh, not based on alternative sources of data and expertise. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm just trying to figure out how is this, how is this statement being used to sort of. Like why bother basically? 
yeah, what is the is the idea that people are people who've taken the first pill might change their mind and then yes, is yeah, that, that, it's it's basically sort of like saying you should change your mind, and if you do change your mind, you don't have to go through with it. Um, even after taking, interesting. So, um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so in terms of this whole issue of like these alternative universes, right, where you can go and you can find, you know, information here and here that maybe seems to corroborate a alternative view that isn't actually based on facts or is based on outdated information that hasn't been updated. Does, does that, you know, alternative universe or set of alternative universes play a role actually in how, um, how these debates, you know, play out and the, you know, the political side of it and the legal side of it or. Oh, yeah. It, yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, so the most prominent example legally, right. Um, and so there was, you guys probably remember partial birth abortion, if that sounds vaguely familiar. Sure. Um, so there's a, a specific procedure that Congress banned in 2003 and the Supreme Court upheld the ban. And the whole fight about the ban was, does it need a health exception? So, like, are there scenarios when um, pregnant people would, like, benefit from having access to this procedure? And uh, the, some medical experts, like the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, said yes. And others said no. And especially anti-abortion experts. And the Supreme Court came out of that and said, when there's uncertainty, so in other words, when experts seem to disagree, legislators can restrict abortion, like the tiebreaker goes to the legislatures. So the mm -hmm. ability to create uncertainty is sort of like the easiest way right now to justify new abortion restrictions that make it harder for certain people to get abortion. So that's like probably one of the big reasons that um, abortion access has been successfully limited. And it matters politically too. So um, just, uh, I think it was this week, um, or no, it was actually last week. There's been a lot on this. Uh, so Senator Ted Cruz um, and a group of other Republican senators went to the FDA arguing that abortion pills are unsafe and asking the FDA to pull them from the market. Um, that's pretty clearly a big part of the political argument against abortion too. So um, that's one of the things that's really amazing about abortion is how coordinated the GOP and the pro-life movement really are like nothing that happens in the states is well that's not entirely true but almost everything that happens in the states has been proposed and refined by some group in dc that has a bigger master plan hmm. so mary one thing that we uh often talk about when we're kind of approaching the end of an episode is to imagine, you know, well, what would happen if we took this zombification? And, you know, in this case, I think we're sort of talking about the way that, um, you know, political and, you know, emotional arguments can actually hijack um, law and what those consequences are. So what if we took that zombification and we just amped it up so that it was way more than what's happening now? Um, you know, what kind of zombie apocalypse would we be in if that zombification was just turned way up? I mean, I think we could be facing that because like one of those sort of, to me, like just delusionally optimistic arguments you would hear lawyers make sometimes is like, oh, if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, our abortion politics would just be more normal. 
And I mean, I feel like to say that you just cannot have studied the abortion debate at all, because what would happen if the court overturned Roe, right, is you would have a little mini civil war in every state, right? So Alabama would be fighting about like whether to ban in vitro fertilization and contraception. And New York would be fighting about whether to legalize, you know, post-viability abortions. And then Florida would just, you know, literally go up in flames probably because everybody would be fighting. It's like the quintessential swing state. Um, And so I think if you gave states the ability to do whatever they wanted on abortion, um, given how emotional this already is and given how much the facts have been politicized, it would just, it would be like 50 little mini zombie apocalypse is plural, I think this. <laughs> yeah, apocalypses. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I think I think that would probably, and I mean, and the other thing, of course, about that is it wouldn't make it any better from the standpoint of the Supreme Court being a battleground, right? Because if history has taught us nothing, is that the Supreme Court can't get people to give this up. That was the game plan in Roe v. Wade. Like Harry Blackman, who wrote Roe v. Wade, had little things in his, his binder saying, you know, most people support the idea that a woman and her doctor should decide about abortion. And he thought it was just going to write this opinion and it was going to all be over. And here we are like almost 15 years later still talking about this. So if the Supreme Court went the other way, it's not like the pro-choice movement would just, you know, take their toys and go home. They would just try to do the same thing in reverse, right? Where they wanted to bring, you know, they would spend the next however many decades fighting too. So we, we would have, I think, it would just make things even more zombified and ratchet things up even more. Hmm. You, you've seen some of this firsthand, right? Because you, you sort of uh, have been pulled in to comment on what's going on with the debate oh, yeah. and different sides. Do you have any like uh, experiences from that that have informed like your your thoughts or feelings about how this is going down or might go down in the future? Well, I mean, one of the sort of saddest things is that in doing historical research, I've talked to a lot of people with some pretty extreme views. And it's actually surprisingly easy to empathize with and understand people, even people you disagree with 100% if you actually listen to them. And then during these conversations, they'll say, well, have you ever tried talking to somebody who thinks X? And the immediate response is, well, people like that are terrible. Like, I think part of the other sort of problem with the world of alternative facts has been the kind of like demonization of the people who occupy the other universes, right? The people who are unlike you are, you know, they hate you, they're irrational, they're they're at best kind of misguided and at worst deceitful and wrong. Um, And so... I think ironically, it sort of made me think both that there are a lot of decent people who are doing things that are not so decent, but also that it makes me a little bit worried that we're so far apart in terms of how we see each other, right? Even inaccurately in ways that would make it harder for us to have like a more productive conversation. Yeah. Well, and this this whole issue of the, you know, alternative universes with different facts really contributes to that because you can just be in a world where you're only interacting with people who believe the same things that you do. Mm -hmm. And then when you step outside of that, that divide is just so large that sometimes it's hard to find any common ground. And, um, you know, and and then you kind of get into this other 
aspect of the zombie apocalypse, which is the othering, right? It's like, oh, they're not us. They're monsters. You know, they're the enemy. They're evil. Um, And I think that the way that information has been flowing, you know, especially in recent years with the dependence that many people have on social media for Mm -hmm. getting facts um, has just led to this like deepening of this divide. And that has, I think, this inevitable consequence of putting us, you know, at greater distance from each other and making it harder to, to talk across those differences in beliefs about the world. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think social media has absolutely had that effect in abortion politics and politics about contraception too, where it's, it's hard for people. Like, you don't run into anyone who can challenge your opinions anymore. Um, you don't have to, and people often choose to insulate themselves, and then, of course, they don't change their minds, right? Um, and being able to change your mind is a good thing, right? If there's evidence that you're wrong, you should change your mind. But people are often see that as like a sign of weakness and that's dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. But it actually shows that you're not zombified if you can't exactly. change your mind. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> I have to go get a ASU COVID test. I actually think this sort of topic of othering and the sort of thinking of the, the people with the other out group with the other opinion as zombies is actually a really interesting topic. I would actually love it if we could just have an episode where we just discuss that whole thing. So maybe Mary, I don't know if there'd be a time in the future where we could get together and discuss that, but I think that'd be really fun. So well, Dave, good luck with your COVID test. It was just (laughs) randomly called, right? That you have to go in and get tested because you're on campus. Yeah, I have to get tested within 24 hours. And this is the one time that was available. So um, I'm going to go. Hopefully I'll be fine. So I I will see you guys later. Mary, it was great talking to you. You too. Good luck. Bye. So Mary, we'll just uh, maybe go on to sort of the last set of questions really, which is around, you know, what do we do about this or is there anything we could do? You know, we talked about these, you know, issues of the, you know, this divide that we have in this country. What, you know, why has, have things become so politicized in terms of, you know, the policy issues around abortion, but, you know, of course this extends much more broadly, right. To like us having these deep divisions around policy issues. Uh, You know, the current situation with the COVID crisis is another example, right. Where Mm -hmm. something that, um, you know, doesn't need to be political, has become extremely political, like, for example, you know, the mask wearing debate. Um, So, you know, given where we are as the country that, you know, the United States of America, um, are there things that we can do as individuals? Are there things that we can do as a society to move us in a better direction? Well, I I think there are probably two things. I mean, the first thing I think is if you find a sticking point like abortion, it's good to stop fighting about it and find things that are adjacent that you might agree on, right? So I mentioned maternal mortality earlier. Um, You know, the U.S. is really a laggard in developing countries when it comes to maternal mortality, and the numbers are particularly gross if you're thinking about Black women and non-white women in general. That's something you would think people on differing sides of the abortion debate could agree about. So instead of just butting heads about abortion and trying to convince people who might be impossible to convince, working on, or, or things like discrimination against pregnant employees, right? So trying to find 
if somebody, so in other words, if somebody disagrees with you politically, instead of just dismissing them as, you know, a zombie, you try to find areas where you agree with them, because then it might make it actually easier for you to approach them as a normal human being Mm -hmm. on the issues with which you disagree, right? So like, at least then there's a starting place of like, maybe at least some kind of grudging respect that would make it easier to have the conversations. And then I think there's a little bit just in terms of how we talk about people. Like one of the things I've noticed is even if you're talking to someone using it, it, it's sort of reminiscent of when people talk about gender identity, right? But if somebody identifies as, you know, Christian or pro-life or or pro-choice or whatever, right? Like using the language they use instead of calling them something that feels to them like an insult, that kind of thing can make it feel like you're listening and can make people who are talking to you more receptive of what you're putting out, right? If you're then saying something that challenges them, they might be a little bit more likely um, to listen. So like, for example, there's uh, somebody I I interact with sometimes um, on Twitter who follows me and um, he was saying essentially, well, you know, we we shouldn't care about maternal mortality because it's just in a a pro-choice talking point and it's all driven by obesity and it's all people's faults. And, you know, what would a better solution be? And because I've, I've been respectful to him in the past, I said, well, a better solution would be fewer, fewer people dying. And you're wrong that people have, you know, these people don't have access, for example, to decent prenatal care and maternal care. And because that was coming from someone who had not dismissed him or demonized him, he was sort of more receptive than I expected. Um, and I think that that's, that's a good lesson that if you want people to listen to you, you have to, it's like the golden rule, right? I mean, it sounds yeah. cheesy, but I think we forget that sometimes in American politics, especially when things have gotten this bad, right? Like we're all, you know, doing Zooms instead of meeting in person and worrying about um, the intensity of protests, worrying about safety. I mean, there's all kinds of things that have gone to hell. So in that environment, it's natural to want to blame people and to to treat people we don't agree with as zombies even more. But that is a path further into the apocalypse, right? I don't yeah. Path out. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you were making your first point also about trying to find that adjacent common ground, mm-hmm. Not only does that then give you an entry point to having a more human discussion about what you disagree about, but it also opens up this space of, well, you know, how should we be prioritizing our collective energies for change, right? Mm -hmm. And if we prioritize those energies only on the places where there's conflict, um, Mm -hmm. then we end up not going anywhere on average, right? But if we prioritize our energies for those things that we do agree about, then the effort that we put in is synergistic as opposed to working against itself. And so, you know, that might even just be a, a reframing of, you know, well, when it comes to reproductive rights, where are the places where most of us agree where the, you know, reality is not matching up with what we feel like it should be in terms of human rights and, you know, taking care of people's health. So I think there's a, there's huge potential there for, for that shift. And, and I, I love what you're saying also just about this, like, you know, mutual respect and that if you listen and try to not just, you know, make them feel heard, but really try to understand where they're coming mm-hmm. from, that, that just puts you in a much better position to, to deeply understand why you don't agree as opposed yeah, to absolutely 
And to see the gray areas, like one of the things I was really, I've been sort of stunned and really saddened by in doing research is how many people just feel completely homeless in American politics, right? Feel that no one hears them, no one understands them. There are definitely people who are like delighted, right, with the way things are, but there are a lot of other people who aren't. And I think another part of listening to people is is hearing the nuance, right? That if people are talking, especially about a hot button topic like abortion, that you don't leap to conclusions. That's another way I think we're zombified, where we have sort of very fixed categories we tend to put people into. And a lot of people really are not like that when it comes to their actual beliefs. And so being willing to to kind of grapple with that and with who people really are, um, instead of falling back on like convenient ideas about who we assume people to be, that can be helpful too. Um, I think that was that was certainly helpful for me. I mean, I think I had, before starting the kind of work I do, I definitely had more stereotypes than mm-hmm. I should have been. Like, they're like a handful of people who are really like that. Like I've, I've had done a few oral histories that were, thank God, over the phone where I could just, I was thinking like, it's really good that no one can see my face right now because I would be speaking like, you know, <laughs> people. Um, and so that does happen, but the vast majority of people I talked to were, were easy to understand. You know, if you kind of understood their stories, it was very easy to follow how they got from point A to point B, even if you weren't in the same place. And I, I think that kind of conversation is, is really productive. Yeah, right. It takes you away from then thinking, oh, well, they believe what they believe because they're uninformed or they're stupid or they're under the influence of some evil forces, right? Like when you actually listen, then you get that human side of how somebody came to believe what they believe and have the position that they have. And Mm -hmm. then you can do it from a place of respect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the hope. Yeah. Well, Mary, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us on this episode (laughs) of Zombified. My my pleasure. Hopefully there's still some left. (laughs) And if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if you don't want to fall in love, you better tell me right now. And if the Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And we would like to thank everyone who makes Zombified possible, including the Department of Psychology here at Arizona State University. The Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and the President's Office at ASU, who generally generally and generously support (laughs) us making this podcast. Thank you for your general, generous support. Um, uh, The Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. 
of zombie politics? Baby. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) And all the brains that help make this podcast. Uh, Shout out to Tall Rom, who does our fabulous sound. Does a great job. And uh, Neil Smith, who makes all our illustrations and makes us all look like zombies. Yeah, he definitely plays a big role in zombifying all of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, and, in more ways than one, and, right? And hopefully, hopefully we zombify him too. Um, so. I, I, think, I think he's been pretty zombified by this whole thing. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, um, and then uh, Lemmy. Lemmy, who does the song, yeah. Psychological, which we use all over the place. It really sets the tone. So Yeah, I love that song. I, I've been zombified by that song. Yeah, it gets stuck in your brain. So (laughs) (laughs) it does, yeah. And of course, thank you to our amazing Z team, the undergraduates, graduate students, um, staff who all help to make the Zombified podcast happen, transcribe our episodes so that they can be available for the hearing impaired, help us with social media. Um, They're just amazing in general. Yeah, they really are. They really help everything come together. So thank you guys. Yeah. And if you want to uh, join our virtual Z team, you can follow us on social media. That's right. You can send us comments. You can write comments about us or you can just follow us. Yeah, next one. That's fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, like I said, I like insulting people on the internet. So, you know, if people want to insult me, I guess that's fine. If they so want. they can say unkind things to you, but they should say nice things to me. Okay, sounds good. Okay. <laughs> so, um, just know where to direct your comments, you know. <laughs> Have complaints, send them to Dave. <laughs> There we go. I'll be sure to either address them or say something mean back. But one way or another, at least you'll get a response. Um, So, uh, all right. Well, if you want to uh, send us nice comments uh, or mean comments or any other sort of comments or just listen to more of our podcasts, uh, a good place to start is zombified.org. That has all the different episodes of our podcast. Yeah. And you can find us Twitter, on Twitter, on Instagram on TikTok, on Facebook. That's right. And um, MySpace, Friendster. Um, <laughs> no. AOL <laughs> Instant those. Messenger. No, none of those. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, also channelz.org has all of our video content. So um, if you... Yeah, yeah, so if you can't get enough of um, Zombified, definitely check out Channel Z. We've got this sort of, you know, like shorter format shows. It's all video. So um, you can see Dave's hair, which is pretty awesome. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yeah, we have uh, lots of fun shows. It's not just um, the two of us too. We've got hosts of other shows like uh, Emily Zarka, who does Go Bag Challenge. If you're not sure what you should be packing in your go bag for the zombie apocalypse and Joe Alcock, i.e. Dr. Zed, um, who you know, can give you advice about what to do if you get bitten by a zombie or if, you know, all you have left to eat is brains. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And then, and then we've got eat, pray, run. If, if you want to, if all you have left to eat is brains, you can cook those up. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) (laughs) um, You need some cooking tips for, uh, you know, your, your and, and all the hosts really have 
different haircuts, I think. So, you know, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so, I don't know why that's the big sell, but there you go. Um, all right. One last thing in terms of um, grooming or whatever. We have T-shirts. Uh, <laughs> okay. Maybe that wasn't the smoothest transition, but the point is buy our T-shirts. Um, yes. So. We have awesome merch, um, including zombified merch and um, merch for all of our Channel Z shows. So, you know, you can be prepared and show your preparation with your awesome Z team t-shirts. That's right. And your awesome mugs that you could, you could probably put your sort of brain soup in. So, yeah, well, and mugs are great because, um, in a pinch you could throw them at somebody if, or a zombie, sorry, not somebody at a zombie if you're getting attacked. That's true. You can do that with a t-shirt, actually. I had somebody hit me in the eye with a t-shirt and I had to wear a patch. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep that in mind, Dave. If you're ever like a zombie, you turn into a zombie and you're coming at me, I'll just throw a t-shirt at you to, you know, disable you. So <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Um, thanks so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you all for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.